Ion 2020, episode 14. Thank you for joining me on the Eye on 2020 podcast. My name is Ray Eaton, and I will be your host as we move towards November of 2020. I plan to do all the research on these presidential candidates so you don't have to. So if you like politics, enjoy, because if 2020 is anything like 2016, we are in for a treat. Oh, and did I mention I'm a libertarian through and through? Hello, hello, hello. This is Ray Eaton, your host of Eye on 2020, the podcast that focuses in on the 2020 election and all of the news and coverage for the 2020 election as we get closer. We are uh, about 22 months away from the elections now, so we're quite a, quite a bit of ways out, but we are starting to get some good information coming out regarding the candidates that are going to be popping up on the Democratic side. There's been some uh, libertarians that have come out and said they're going to be running for president as well and you know there's going to be a good little fight going on to try to uh try to get in there against donald trump and you know he's gonna be throwing some blows as well and like i always say if uh if 2020 is anything like 2016 it is going to be we're all in for a treat at least it'll be good show right it'll be definitely a good show for you and uh, that's you know that that's all we could hope for i guess i mean we are in a country where we're looking at different candidates and so forth and you know a lot of times they will sink to the lowest level that they possibly can we saw that in 2016 when Donald Trump was fighting up fighting against Hillary Clinton and that was a you know just an epic battle between two candidates that were pretty strong uh but you know when I look at it Hillary Clinton she was a flawed candidate she had she had her issues we all know that and uh, that's why Donald Trump won, even right up to the end, though. Nobody thought he would win, and he did, because he he, just, he threw a lot of blows. And uh, I guess, you know, people liked him. Generally, people liked him, so that's why they voted for him. And that's all there is to it. So we're, we're, looking, at, um, we're looking at 2020 right now, and I, the big news of the day today was pretty much that, or over the weekend, was that Kirsten Gillibrand had formed her exploratory committee and she is the senator from new york and uh she was the one that took over for hillary clinton when hillary clinton left and became the secretary of state back in 2009 and uh kirsten or not not yeah it was the secretary of state she was running for president she did she lost against obama and then she became the uh secretary of state and that's when kirsten gillibrand became this a senator but before that she was a uh she was in the house of representatives representing the 20th congressional district which is generally a conservative district and uh, she is considered what they call a blue dog democrat and it says right here in the in uh, on wikipedia under political positions of kirsten gillibrand in the house she was known as a conservative democrat or centrist serving at the will of the highly conservative electorate she was a member of the Blue Dog Coalition and a caucus of conservative Democrats in the Senate. She is known more as one of the most liberal senators 
as she represents a heavily democratic state. So she seems like she kind of, you know, stuck her finger up in the air, um, you know, licked her finger, stuck it up in the air and figured out which way the wind was blowing. And she kind of changes her views accordingly because if she's one of those liberal senators, but she was a conservative um, Democrat in the House, you know, that's, and, and she was representing a conservative congressional district, then you could see why she would change her views because she, you know, what, she's one of those people that seems like she would be willing to change her views. But if you really get into her record, that's what I started reading up on today is trying to figure out what her record is. And I came to the conclusion that she is just uh, Hillary Clinton 2.0 when you really look at it. Um, she she took over Clinton's seat and she's very, she, I mean, she's in favor of a lot of the wars that were going on back in 2008, 2009, when she was in the House of Representatives. She did vote for a lot of the wars and so forth. And I'll get a little bit more deep into that now, but um, a very hawkish candidate, I think she'll be. And I'm not sure, maybe she changed her views now. That's possible. But at, from, from her voting record, and that's what we really judge people on, I guess, when you're looking at people that are in the Senate, her voting record has been very hawkish on foreign policy. Kind of like a Hillary 2.0 in that way. And I'm sure that the if you're looking for a good centrist person, if you're looking for a good centrist uh, Democrat to vote for, I think that she's going to be going more towards a centrist policy from the foreign and the uh, foreign from from the uh, foreign her foreign issue or her domestic policy and her foreign policy i think she's going to be going towards more of a centrist view and i guess once she starts campaigning we'll know a little bit more but from what i see you know she could very much run as a centrist in the democratic party and have a leg to stand on except for maybe her uh voting for the last you know several years when she's been in the senate because it does say that she's one of the most liberal senators. But I guess as a New York senator, you kind of have to be one of the most liberal senators, right? That's just the way it is. I mean, they're the ones that, that uh, in New York City especially, they're the ones that, you know, they're voting for socialists to become um, Congress people. So let's t dive into it. So on domestic policy, we get into the LGBT community, the social issues. Um, she's a very she's a supporter of civil unions. Back in 2006, a lot of Democrats seem like they have changed their views on those things. I think libertarians have typically been hands off, say the government shouldn't even have any involvement in deciding whether people get married or not. That's a person to person issue. Um, I think she's kind of there as well, which is fine. Um, she also, let's go on to the abortion issue. She is a supporter of abortion rights. Um, I will, she says, I will always protect women's right to choose no matter what. So I wonder if what, how far she takes it no matter what, because a lot of people have an issue with like late-term abortions and so forth. Um, libertarians kind of, a lot of times they sidestep that particular issue because it is so controversial. But if you really get into it, um, is it the government's? decision to tell you what to do with your body i'm not sure um i'm a man so i've never had to make that decision and i, I think that's a good one good thing for me that i've never had to make that decision because uh because that would be probably the hardest decision you can make in life right um so i've always said leave that in the woman's hands but 
I also see the other side of the, the I also see the other people's view as well. If it's a human life, um, at least government can protect that, right? So I kind of see both sides of that issue. Um, gun laws, she has, up until she's been in the Senate, she was good on guns. The National Rifle Association gave her 100% while she was in the House, but since then, she's kind of um, changed with the changed with the times, if you know what I mean. Doesn't that, isn't that what politicians typically do, right? But Gillibrand's support, Gillibrand support of gun rights has specifically been characterized as hunter's rights. So she's all about hunting, but she's not really serious, it doesn't seem like, about you know, the Second Amendment being what it is, which is Congress shall pass no law with regards to guns, right? Isn't that, I mean, I'm not quoting exactly, but that's pretty much what it says. Um, and she's made it, she voted against a some legislation that would make it easier to carry guns in, the, in Washington, D.C. So she's definitely um, willing to vote against your right to carry a gun. Let's hop into criminal justice reform, which I think she seems like she's pretty good on. Um, one of the things that she says is that she would like... Now, don't get me wrong. I think that she's good on it, but I don't think that it's the federal government's job to um, tell states what to do. And this is what this is what I'm getting at. In December 2018, Gillibrand stated her hope that the No Cash Bail Act would be one of the first bills introduced in the 2016 uh, United States Congress legislation that she said would require states require states that's what I'm getting at require states to implement alternative pretrial systems along with a reduction in pretrial jail populations so whenever I see the word require the states that's kind of that kind of throws me off because I don't want the federal government to require the states to do anything right um, they're using the money that they have given to the states uh, that they use kind of to hold it over their heads to tell them what to do, and I think that that's wrong. So I'm for the idea of getting maybe having states move away from a cash-based bail system because that does there is a lot of inequity in that, especially when you know a rich person has a very easy time getting out, whereas the very poor people have no chance to get out, and it can ruin their lives, especially when you assume as a libertarian, as an American, that you are innocent until proven guilty, right? So, now in some cases, obviously, people should not get out. Um, if there's, you know, if they're caught red-handed killing somebody or something, then obviously there should be, have a very hard time for get, that person getting out. But if it's just some issues that come up that, you know, you have a $10,000 bail for something that's, you know, possession of marijuana and things like that, um, I think that that is an, a grave injustice to people and that there should be a different bail system. <clears throat> I've heard a lot of uh, several podcasts on that, and I'm convinced that that's true. So I think that she's on the right track with this criminal justice reform. My challenge is, is the requirement from the federal government. Um, I think that it should be maybe talked about by the federal government to implement those things, but I don't think there should be any requirements, because that is when um, the government's just, the federal government should, you know, that that's not part of the Constitution. So, if it's not in the Constitution, they shouldn't be doing it, right? So, anyway, she is good on criminal justice reform, it seems like, but she has the wrong implementation, I think.
All right, let's talk about Kirsten Gillibrand's uh, or Kirsten Gillibrand's ideas on the economy because that's something that typically libertarians are very passionate about. I've never met a libertarian that was not passionate about economic issues. That's a rarity to find somebody that is not passionate about economic issues, especially when you are a libertarian. Um, I've always been very passionate about economic issues, so let's see what her economic issues are. So during the height of the global financial crisis in 2008, Gillibrand, then a member of the House of Representatives, voted twice against the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2018. Um, She said it was fundamentally flawed. I think most people did believe that that was fundamentally flawed. Um, I'm not sure why she says it's fundamentally flawed, though it does not say in here. Um, But... Then she did, she did, however, vote for the uh, auto industry bailout, and I'm sure there was lots of stuff in there for her constituency, though, that would, you know, make her vote for it. So, you know, bail out the big businesses with, with taxpayer money that was confiscated from them. I'm never for that. So, um, 2009, Gillibrand said that during her first week in the Senate, she would work to ensure that the stimulus bill included relief funds for New York State. Um, she got those, and she got those um, stimulus pa- or part of that stimulus package went towards her state, and she made sure that it went into New York. So she is fighting for her constituencies, I guess, uh, to get more of your money. I'm never for them taking any of our money, so um, I think that she's wrong on that issue. And then, I mean, it doesn't really get into where she really stands on economic issues, though. She seems like she's a true liberal with, you know, government spending can add more to the economy and, you know, take more of the rich people's money and so forth. That's what it seems like to me. She did support the Bush tax cuts, and in 2012, uh, Senator Gillibrand voted for extending them, but against an amendment extending them for those earning more than $200,000. So she did vote to extend the Bush tax cuts. Uh, in 2012. Uh, She seems like she does vote outside of her party every so often, and I think it's more of a um, finger-to-the-wind type thing than anything else, uh, because she does do that several times when I was reading a little bit about her, that she's willing to vote outside of her party. And usually it comes down to, um, it was a lot of times on the war issues and stuff like that, but taxes, she seems like she's generally okay on... um, on keeping taxes lower, so I guess that's good. It's better than um, the 70% that some of these or Democrats are starting to espouse nowadays. So I'll 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 go along with that. Gillibrand voted in favor of patent the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. What is that? We all know Obamacare. So she voted for it, um, and she also supported a public option. And then it says that she is recently, in September 2017, she supported uh, Bernie Sanders and 14 others in a, as a co-sponsor for submitting a single-payer health care plan to Congress called the Medicare for All bill. Wow, that's terrible that she would be supportive of that. But I think pretty much all Democrats are. I mean, that was the, that was the plan back in 2008, 2009 when they were, trying, when they were passing Obamacare, right? was to move the progression towards uh, the Medicare for All bill, like some some sort of single payer. That's all they talk about. And then ultimately single payer, the next step for that or beyond that 
is for the government to take over the entire medical industry because Medicare for all, a single payer, is going to cause doctors to, um, I mean, doctors already don't, don't take Medicare. So ultimately that'll be, that'll be what'll happen is where if the doctors decide to stop taking Medicare, which a lot of them do, I know this because, you know, I have family members that work in the medical industry, and they constantly say that doctor that Medicare, a lot of doctors are not covering Medicare and Medicaid anymore. Um, they'll only take other types of insurance or cash payments. That's pretty normal nowadays. Um, it's not as prevalent where there, most doctors still do accept Medicare and Medicaid, but some are t- starting to opt out of that system. Um, so. If you had a Medicare for all, then you'd find a lot of doctors start opting out of the system because there's so much bureaucracy and so much red tape to get paid. And it's so hard to get paid. And uh, they only pay it like 60 cents on the dollar. And it's the government telling you how much you're getting paid. So these doctors often can't even afford to take a SEP Medicare because there's so much, pro- so many problems with it. It can't just be a doctor and a nurse anymore. It has to be a doctor and a nurse and like, you know, 10 other staff members just to bill all these people. It's insane. And that's why the cost, that's one of the reasons why the cost of, uh, cost of your medical care has gone up is because of that, because of all that bureaucratic red tape. So I'm not in support of a Medicare for all plan and she is. So that is definitely a, um, a strike against her for sure. Um, then let's move on. We got security. So from a security standpoint, uh, terrorism. Gillibrand has co-sponsored restoring habeas corpus for det- detainees on the war of terror. Terror. I am absolutely in favor of that. Our government should not be able to hold people um, in jail indefinitely just because they're decided that they might be a terrorist. Absolutely wrong. It's illegal, and it, and she she definitely is in, on the right side of that issue. Immigration. Um, says that she has shifted her position on immigration. Yeah, obviously. I mean, she seems like she's a, you know, she definitely seems like she is willing to shift her position based upon what people say um, and how she feels at the time. But on immigration, it says, Gillibrand's views on illegal immigration have shifted since she joined the Senate, noted for having relatively conservative viewpoints while in the House. She quickly switched some opinions upon entering the Senate. That's amazing that you can do that, right? As a representative, Gillibrand opposed granting any sort of amnesty to illegal Ill, illegal immigrants and supported empowering local police to enforce federal immigration laws. She also opposed giving federal contracts to employers that hire illegal immigrants. So she was pretty conservative on those issues. And I don't know if that's conservative, right? She was pretty Republican on those issues um, in the as a representative. But then when she got appointed to Senate, it says that Gillibrand's positions were criticized by immigration advocates and Democrat, Democratic elected officials, especially in New York. She subsequently changed some of her positions when she came into the Senate, explaining that it's a case of learning more and expanding my view. She now opposes deporting illegal immigrants and cutting off funds to sanctuary cities. She also s- supports an earned path to citizenship for legal immigrants. I, I'm kind of neutral on the immigration issue. Uh, I think that um, if you had no government at all, you know, there would be free flow of free flow, flow of labor, essentially, right? Now, you do have a Mexican government, you do have a Canadian government, and you do have an American government. So 
um, I'm kind of, I'm kind of um, not too extreme on that. I think that you know immigrants are probably pretty good for our country. They bring in, they come in, they work, they pay taxes. If you allowed them to pay taxes, if you allowed them to work, you know, on the books, they would be paying taxes and so forth. So, um, but then again, they are a net positive for a area that they're in. Look at Miami back in the 1980s when you had the Cubans coming over. It's just a, it was a booming area. It was, you know, there was a, there was a lot of people there. They bring, they bring hunger. So you got to provide them food. So you got to buy food. They got to work for that food. So there's going to be an economy based around that. And I think that that's a good thing. If you got rid of 10 million immigrants today and deported them all back to Mexico, that is, you know, a percent, a two percent drop in the two and a half percent drop in the population of the United States at that point. So you're going to have a lot less economic activity because of those people, 10 million people. So I think that uh, in general, having immigration is good. It should be very liberalized, I think. Um, and that, that's that's all there is. I mean, that's that's how I feel about it. Um, and I'm sure that that is a very controversial issue, even within the libertarian movement. I've heard people say that there should be open borders and so forth, um, you know, the anarcho-capitalists would say there should be no borders anywhere in the entire world because there would be no government. The only border would be your private property. And uh, that's, you know, that's a fair assessment as well. So let's get into internet privacy. Um, she says that Gillibrand was a co- or it says that Gillibrand was a co-sponsor of the controversial Protect IP Act, which would restrict access to websites judged to be infringing copyrights. I'm against pretty much any law that would come up um, that the federal government will pass. So when she's a sponsor of it, then uh, that seems a little bit iffy, especially when it says that the federal government is going to restrict access because who gets to make those decisions then? Um, who has the power then, right? So I think that's pretty challenging. Um Let's see. So she was the only senator to vote against the confirmation of James Mathis as the Secretary of Defense. She opposed the No Child Left Behind Act. That's fine. I don't, I'm not sure why she opposed it, but I would have opposed it as well. She supports doubling the child-dependent care credit in elim- or in eliminating or permanently fixing the alternative minimum tax. I'm not sure. I, I know what the alternative minimum tax is. Um, and it, yeah, it does. I think they have to pass a stopgap or some kind of, you know, way to get keep people from having to pay it every single year, right? So you might as well just get rid of it all together because I think that as inflation happens, that that number comes down even further of people that would have to pay the alternative minimum tax. So, and I am for all the tax credits you can get, so I don't have to pay as much taxes. Um, so that's a positive thing, I suppose. And then I'm trying to get into her foreign policy because those were some that those were things that I found to be uh, very telling, right? Because, like I said, she's like a little bit a little Hillary um, when it comes to her foreign policy. Gillibrand supports on Afghanistan. Gillibrand supports immediate withdrawal from Afghanistan. She stated that America cannot afford an endless war in Afghanistan. That is positive. I think that that's really a good thing. And I think that I saw an article about her comparing her to uh, Rand Paul on that issue. But it, I think the article is just trying to use it as, uh, use her name as clickbait because it mentioned her in like the first paragraph and then the rest of it was about Rand Paul's foreign policy. So maybe since she's about to be running for or announcing her candidacy, 
uh, that they were just using it as clickbait. But she does support uh, getting out of Afghanistan immediately. That's not a new issue because Ron Paul said it, what, in 2008? We marched in, we could march back out, right? Okay, Iran, she supports and voted for sanctions against the Iranian regime. I think that's terrible um, because I think that this this Iranian threat seems like it's a little bit more blown up than it is. I listen to Scott Horton constantly on uh, anti-war radio. Scott Horton show, listen to him. He has a wealth of knowledge on these issues. And uh, check out antiwar.com as well because I I support that uh, website as a donor. And I think that it's uh, a wealth of information for you if you really want to learn a lot about foreign policy. And what's going on out there? Iraq. On May 24th, Gillibrand, 2007, Gillibrand joined with Republicans in voting against the Democratic leadership for a bill to provide funding for U.S. efforts in Iraq without setting withdrawal deadlines for troops. Of the five freshman Democratic members of Congress from New York in 2007, Gillibrand was the only one to vote yes. In 2008, she once again voted to provide funding for the war in Iraq against, and again was the only New York Democratic congressional delegate to vote with the Republicans. So she seems like she's very much in favor of all the things that were going on in Iraq. Um, she, she later voted against the Iraq surge, though, and supported the timeline for withdrawal. And I think that that's when she was in well, the surge, yes, that happened under Obama, right? So... She was already in the Senate at the time, so she seems like she um, kind of changed her views, maybe. I don't know. But she's very concer- she's very hawkish, it seems like, on her foreign policy. On Israel, she uh, supports Israel. She says, specifically, Senator Gillibrand will continue to strengthen America's close relationship with the state of Israel. I don't under- I've, I've never understood this close relationship with the state of Israel, like... If they're an ally, they're an ally, but there shouldn't be some kind of special relationship. What are they, the 51st state or something? I don't know. But um, there was the Zionist movement throughout the you know, the 20th century and stuff. And I think that there's still, obviously, America's still Americans. And, you know, there's still a lot of people that are, you know, pro-Zionist, this pro-Zionist movement within America. And I know that the um, the Israel lobby has a very strong hold in Washington, D.C. as well. So... If you're ever going to try to pull funds, there's a huge uproar within the uh, within that community. In 2012, Gillibrand came out against Democratic Charles Barron, a candidate for the state's 8th congressional district, because she viewed him as anti-Israel. So if somebody does seem like they're anti-Israel, she's going to go against them. Um, so, like, a, another hawkish, another hawkish view, I would say. In 2011... Gillibrand supported American actions in Libya. Wow. Well, I guess, like I said, she is a little Hillary. And uh, so and Hillary was Hillary was the leader of that war, essentially, right? She was the one that, um, she was one that was all for it. She supports Trump talking with uh, North Korean leader King Jong-un. So that's good. Um, she says, I'm very grateful that President Trump is trying diplomacy as opposed to military action. So that that's a little less hawkish there because a lot of people were um, against Trump talking with Kim Jong Un. We got to keep a strong front and blah blah blah. Um, so that, that's a positive statement there. And then on Russia, on December two thousand eighteen, 
after United States Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the Trump administration was suspending its obligations in the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 60 days in the event that Russia continued to violate the treaty, Gillibrand was one of six senators to organize a letter expressing concern over the administration, now abandoning generations of bipartisan U.S. leadership. Yes, America should not... Um, or should not abandon a treaty like that because nuclear arms are absolutely terrible for the world. Um, so, like I said in the very beginning, she seems like she's a little bit of a Hillary type thing, like Hillary Jr. In a lot of reviews, she's very centrist. And uh, when she's going to talk with people in Iowa over the weekend and talking with people, uh, or when she was talking with people in Iowa over the weekend, when she was talking to, with people in uh New Hampshire over the weekend and so forth. I think those are the those are the trips that she's planning. I think um, she's going to be speaking from a very centrist point of view, and that'll be. I mean that that'll be fine. She'll, you know, everyone's trying to politic and, or put themselves into a position of where they're going to be at, right? And you're going to have the progressives. You're going to have the anti-war groups. You're going to have the centrists. You're going to have the um, rational people or people that try to be more rational and stuff, you're going to have those people like Joe Biden who are like the experienced ones, right? Everyone's going to try to position themselves in a certain way, and she seems like she'll be positioning herself from a more of a centrist view. Um, so that's Kirsten Gillibrand, senator from New York, and uh, that is your Ion 2020 for the day. I certainly appreciate all my all my listeners. Uh, we are now on Apple uh, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, so go ahead and rate, review, share it with your friends. Uh, I really do appreciate you listening, and please come back again tomorrow because we will be here with our eyes on 2020.